Well, good morning this morning. Uh, I'm Matt Miller. I'm one of six elders here at Northfield, and it is indeed my privilege to be able to, to bring um, today's message to you from the Word of God. I'd like to start with a question this morning, and I'm going to ask for an audible answer. What does counterculture mean to you? What would be your uh, couple-word definition of counterculture? Shout it out. I'll take a couple of them. Anyone? <laughs> Hipster. Hipster, okay. Those are a couple of good ones. Um, just to see if you're on track, the Oxford Dictionary would define it as a way of life or set of attitudes opposed to or at variance with prevailing social norm. So I want to tell you a brief, a brief story about a young man who fits that definition perfectly. Uh, he w- became a follower of Christ at 24 years old. Um, that was one year after he became a member of the British Parliament. So a pretty sharp individual, 23 years old in the British Parliament. A direct quote from his biography said uh, that his decision to follow Christ resulted in major changes to his lifestyle and a lifelong concern for reform. Uh, he championed causes, uh, he championed many causes because of that commitment to Christ. Um, he founded organizations like the Church Mission Society, that's still a ministry in, in, in action today, the Royal Society for the Prevention of the Cruelty of Animals, still functioning today. Uh, he supported causes like missionary work in Africa. And that's saying something for a guy born in 1759. So many of you may have guessed who this is by now, but we're going to keep going a little bit. Um, so 250 years later, some of his organizations are still, are still going strong. Um, He's most famous for his fight against slavery. He led that fight for 20 years until the British Parliament passed the Slave Trade Act of 1807. And then that campaign led to the Slavery Abolition Act of 1833, which abolished slavery in all the British Empire, which was a a large part of the the known world at that time. I mean, it was a a big area. He died just three days after hearing that the Parliament passed that that act through Parliament. Um, if you haven't guessed already, that counterculture icon was William Wilberforce. And what drew me to his story when I researched uh, counterculture icons, uh, it seemed to be a list of morally bankrupt, uh, godless individuals who move society uh, backward, in my mind, uh, from where it should go. And uh, they, they fight against many of the good things in society to usher in cultural standards that don't line up with God's word. But that wasn't William Wilberforce. Um, and it's not also the counterculture icon that we're kind of studying through this, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself. You see, culture played a huge role in, in the Sermon on the Mount in Jesus' time, as it does now even. Um, Jesus was, was engaging the culture of his day, uh, just like Wilberforce engaged the culture, the, the unhealthy slavery culture of his day, um, just as we're called to engage our culture today. Uh, and that culture may even be the church culture within these walls. Um, if you recall from Micah's sermon a few weeks ago, uh, Jesus had just gathered his disciples. This is considered to be his first big sermon, big public sermon. And we've worked our way through this sermon. Uh, we're now in Matthew 5, 33 through 48. And so culture, everything these people had grown up with for generations, had taught them a list of do's and don'ts in order to be righteous. Right? That's what the, the Pharisees had perfected this. Um, that was the religious culture of the day, just like slavery was an accepted part of culture in Wilberforce's time. 
But as we look through the Sermon on the Mount, I'd like us to, to kind of separate ourselves from those things and, and focus on how we can apply this stuff to our culture today. So what, what October 2nd in central Illinois um, in the fall, how does this apply to us today? So as we look at these sections of Scripture, um, I don't want this to be just another learning experience or just, just, fact, just me blurting out facts. Um, I also don't want it to be a napping experience. So I'm going to call on some of you guys who are sleepers. Um, focus up. I mean, really, 30 minutes. You can do it. Um, the, the Scriptures, what we're reading through, are supposed to transform us into something we're not. They're, it's God's living Word. Uh, we can't afford to leave this building the same as we came in. Uh, it, we're not allowing that trans- transformation to happen, if not. I'm not, not saying life has to be completely different, but, but it should affect the, the things we learn today from God's Word should affect the way we act outside of these walls. Um, and I don't, again, I don't think it's just people's lives that are being challenged in this room. I think our culture, even in this church, is being um, challenged as well. So, uh, we have moved to a place where we see church, or many see church, as a place of a bunch of do's and don'ts, not necessarily a place for healing uh, and growth. So, um, next slide. Uh, I skipped a little bit there. William Wilberforce said, what a difference it would be if our system of morality were based on the Bible instead of standards devised by cultural Christians. What a difference it would be if our system of morality were based on, a, on the Bible instead of the standards devised by cultural Christians. The Sermon on the Mount should, uh, should move us to examine our lives, all of it. Um, it should examine our lives and our church. Jesus is calling us out of our little culture here into the culture around us. This was and is still radical teaching. It applies just as much then as it does now. Um, so we're going to move forward. As we go through this, uh, it's page 810 in your pew Bible. Uh, we're going to start off with uh, verse 33, Matthew 5:33, and it's oaths. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, don't break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair black or white. All you need to say is simply yes or no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. I'm going to choose not to spend a ton of time on this section, uh, but I don't think it's random chance that this follows on the heels of Brady's sermon last week on divorce. Um, uh, The vows in a marriage ceremony are a covenant between you and God. And you just simply don't have the power to erase it. In your marriages, your, your friendships, your, built, your business relationships, um, everything, the Lord wants us to be men and women of our word. I don't think we have to overcomplicate this. To make it simple, do what you say you're going to do. Let your yes be yes. Let your no be no. God is sovereign. You are not. You're powerless to make anything happen. Um, for believers in Christ, we're supposed to understand our temporary place in this world. We may not be here tomorrow. Um, and so I also kind of, kind of, I guess it was humorous to me. It might not be humorous to you at all. Uh, I wonder if Jesus would use the same example if in that moment he knew that 1.43 billion boxes of hair color would be sold in the United States every year. 1.43 billion boxes of hair color. 
people really want to change their hair color. But we know they can't. It all grows out the same anyway. We're completely dependent on Christ. Um, we're called to be men and women of our word. That's our first point today. Uh, we're to be people of our word. Next slide, Andrew. Um, I have always loved a good acronym. Uh, we talked about this in the elder meeting. They kind of get used a lot. They can help us remember important details. They can stick in our mind. So a good acronym is, is important. This is not a good acronym. I'm hoping to do the opposite. You'll just remember it for how bad it is. Um, we're going to spend a bit more time in the next one. Eye for an eye, verse 38. You have heard that it was said, eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. And if anyone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. If anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. It was commonly accepted <clears throat> excuse me, in Jesus' times when he spoke these words that you could obtain legal retaliation for somebody who had wronged you in the exact same quantity that they had harmed you. So if, if somebody knocked out your tooth, you could quite literally knock out that exact same tooth in their mouth. Not a different one, not more, not four. The one tooth that was exactly the same one they took out. So eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. But Jesus is saying not anymore. Not for his followers. In a book called Manners and Customs of the Bible, it says Jesus replaced the law with an attitude. Be willing to suffer loss yourself rather than cause another to suffer. And they go on to say, the person who retaliates only makes himself and the offender feel worse. The result is a settled war and not peace. Be willing to suffer loss. Jesus is saying, swallow your pride and walk away. It's better for both parties. So um, if this isn't resonating with you, if nobody's knocked out a tooth recently in your head or poked your eye out, um, let me ask, have you ever gotten bad service at a restaurant? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And, and that is, uh, that's where we see these things play out in our lives. Has anybody cut you off in traffic, hurt your feelings? Our immediate reaction is, how can I retaliate? Uh, when I was self-employed, uh, some of my worst business experiences came at the hands of believers. Be willing to suffer loss rather than stay in the name of Christ. Moving on to going the extra mile, it's still a saying we use today. Um, we often use it when we refer to work. You know, in many cases, you know, Jesus was referring to the custom of a Roman soldier could force you to carry his gear for one mile. It was required. If, he, if a guy come down and plonked his stuff next to you, you had to carry it. Uh, so let's bring this to today. You're, you're walking down South Locust Street. You're by Mike Oswald's place, just taking a leisurely stroll with your wife or your girlfriend or your friend. And a soldier came up and just dumped his gear at your feet. You had to schlep his gear one mile without question. So it didn't matter if you had dinner plans, uh, a date night, if you had a party to go to, a soccer game, a wedding, didn't matter. You had to carry his gear one mile, which if you do the math, pretty simple math, which I can do, that's two mile round trip. So that means you're, you're carrying this guy's gear out to Steve Meyer's house and back before you could continue on with your day. One of the commentaries I read said he instructs his fo followers to unselfishly go the extra mile as testimony to the generosity of the Christian spirit. The expression has come to mean 
um, to help somebody beyond what is required or expected of you. But Jesus just made this, if you remember our scripture, a four-mile round trip. That means now you're going out to Al Beidel's house on Red Shale Hill Road and then back. You just miss date night unless your date likes to carry heavy luggage in long distances. Be willing to suffer loss. Be willing to suffer loss. Now we're going to move on to verse 43 through 48. Love for your enemies. You have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your Father in heaven. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good. He sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you only greet your own people, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. How can this be? I mean, this, this one, to me, seems truly unattainable. We're going to be perfect like God? <clears throat> Let's say some guy in the park shoves your kid, an adult shoves your kid, grabs him to teach him a lesson, or harms your spouse, or breaks into your house, slanders you on social media. We're supposed to love that person. This is a hard one for me, uh, personally. I I posted a meme on Facebook a while back that said, uh, growing up, Sesame Street taught me the importance of education, empathy, and kindness. Bugs Bunny, on the other hand, taught me that revenge on my enemies should be quick, clever, and brutal. That's what culture teaches us. It really, it really does. How can the Lord expect us to love these people that have harmed us and pray for anything other than their righteous annihilation? That, that's what's deep down inside. It, it's impossible. Or is it? Romans 5, 6 through 10, it's page 942 in your pew Bible. You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if while we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Do you catch that part in verse 10? If you are a follower of Christ, you, you were an enemy of God. And I want to say this lovingly and gently, as gently as I can, in case you haven't uh, gotten the implied statement from this. If you're sitting here as an unbeliever in Christ, you are currently an enemy of God. Both of those statements, the past enemy and current enemy, are a bit chilling. This isn't a one-time acquaintance. This isn't somebody you've unfollowed on Facebook or Instagram. This isn't somebody you just don't connect with anymore. You and I were enemies of God Almighty, creator of heaven and earth, the giver of life. Let that, let that sink in for a second. This is a picture from the Hubble telescope. We were, or currently are, enemies of the God who created that 
with his finger. Or that. I set myself up against that God. I was, I was his enemy. But Paul, the writer of Romans, is telling us that God practiced what he preached. See, he loved his enemies to the point that he sacrificed his one and only son that whoever believes in him would have eternal life. The creator of the universe, the God who made that with his finger, loved his enemies so much that he reconciled them. So for the believers in Christ today, what scripture commands us to do, which to me in my own strength is impossible, God says is possible. Remember our verse 44? But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you that you may be children of your Father in heaven. We're to emulate our Father. Remember my, <clears throat> my, uh, my warning about a bad analogy? We're supposed to just love like Jesus. We now have the PBJ <laughs> analogy. It is the most common of sandwiches, and these three attributes should be common in every believer. And sandwiches, like believers, should be uh, identifiable by what's inside of them. And then after that, there's nothing. <laughs> Back to serious. Uh, when we love our enemies, we're emulating our Father in heaven. We're called to do so because it's a trademark of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. We can't accomplish this without God. So what would it look like to live in a culture where everyone were people of their word? Everybody. What would it look like to live in a culture where everyone was willing to suffer loss? Not have to come out on top every time. What would it look like to live in a culture where everybody loved Jesus or loved like Jesus? So hopefully you've been processing the application for this in your own life. And if you're struggling to come up with something of what this looks like currently, I have a few ideas or, um, or examples. All these things I've witnessed personally, actually, whether it be inside Northfield or outside these walls. So these aren't theoretical. But how this applies, maybe you were or have been bullied, harassed in school to the point where you, when you get there, you just want to be like wallpaper, just so you don't, there's no attention drawn to you. Maybe if you're an adult and that's happened, maybe it shaped the way you, you interact with other adults. Maybe you've been wronged in business and it's cost you uh, um, financially, cost you a promotion. Maybe it's cost you your job. Maybe you've been in the foster care system or the adoption system and you're still wrestling with questions as how you ended up there. Maybe, maybe there's bitterness towards your birth parents or your adopted parents. Some here have suffered sexual or physical, verbal or emotional abuse. And the shadow of that person is just right here over your shoulder all the time. Or maybe you've suffered all four. And you've been carrying a crushing weight of shame that you didn't ask to carry. Just like a Roman soldier plunking his gear down and you've got to walk with it. There are so many opportunities on this earth to make enemies. I can't begin to name them all. But can you imagine how freeing it would be to be able to live out this scripture where we can love our enemies? 
I'm going to confess, if I look deep inside myself, and I, I, I can't look deep enough, uh, I got, I'm sure I'm holding wrongs. I, can th- I thought of a few as I was prepping this sermon. Like Rick Sherman said, um, you know, the, when, when you have to preach this and you dig down deep in this, it, it's convicting. Um, I'm not sure, I'm not fully certain I understand that what lies in the depth of my heart. But the, the reason why I'm asking us to look inside of ourselves is this. Back to our friend William Wilberforce. If we don't understand how seriously ill we are, we don't pursue the remedy with the required diligence. If we're slightly ill, we take an aspirin. If we are dying, we passionately pursue a cure. The cure is not forced on us, it's offered to us. The Sermon on the Mount is calling us to unattainable action without Christ. The cure is the sacrifice of Christ, and it's the only way to do what's commanded of us in Scripture, all of Scripture, not just Sermon on the Mount. And if we don't understand that we were or are enemies of God, we're not going to search for a cure as hard as we would. And then we're doomed to a life of spiritual illness. So, can we today, um, we're going to apply this actually, Um, I'm going to ask if we can pray this morning. If you're an unbeliever, I'm going to ask that you just pray for forgiveness. Make yourself, uh, submit yourself to God. There's no better place to be than a former enemy of God. And as I said before from up here, there is nothing more important in your life. There's nothing more pressing. If you are not a follower of Christ, there's nothing more important. And if you are a Christ follower sitting here this morning... Can we pray for somebody who's harmed us? Somebody that that set us up as an enemy against them? Can we start a path towards forgiveness and healing from bitterness in our own lives? So I'm going to, we're going to do this action item together today. I'm going to take a couple minutes and we're going to pray. Um, I'd like you to, to put a face and a name in the front of your head as you're praying. Not just a generic whatever but I think we wouldn't have to look very hard, many of us, to find somebody that we're struggling with or have struggled with. And I'm not so foolish as to believe that the two minutes at the end of a service is going to change life forever and you're going to be best buds with, with whoever you're praying for. Um, but these are the words of Jesus and they're not a suggestion, right? I mean, we can do this with Christ. He tells us to do something and with him it's possible. And if we don't practice this teaching, it won't change us. We can start right, by, right now by surrounded by a church family who's gone through the same things you've gone through. If you, if you for one minute think that if you've been bullied, you're the only person in this room who's been bullied, you're incorrect. There are many. If, you, if you've undergone um, uh, uh, sexual abuse, you are not alone in this room. All the things I mentioned, you're not, you're not alone. You feel alone, I'm sure, but you're not. So I'm going to ask us to kneel, and we'll do that right now. It's fine if you cannot kneel, physically unable, that's okay. If you don't want to, that's fine too. But I want to take a couple minutes, and we'll just pray silently. And then in, in two minutes, I'll, uh, I'll close us with a prayer. So let's pray.
Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray that you would, you would forgive us, Lord. Forgive me for not forgiving. Lord, I pray that you would just keep uh, in my mind the fact that I was once your enemy, Lord, and that you loved me enough to forgive me. Or give us eyes to see ways we can, um, we can apply your word, the, the Sermon on the Mount, everything we've learned, Lord, that we can apply it every day outside of these walls. So we just ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.